Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you beautiful, wonderful people of New Life Church. So glad that you're with us this morning on, uh, on this special weekend. And for those of you who have just one way or another found yourself here, even if you're not a part of the New Life Church family, uh, we're just so glad that you found us this morning and pray that you will be blessed. Well, I can imagine that uh, many of you right now are curled up on the couch at home in your living room, staring at your big screen TV, or, or maybe it's just your little iPhone. Maybe some of you are wearing your nice warm woolly socks that you got for Christmas, maybe holding a cup of hot coffee or tea in hand. Uh, but I pray that uh, alongside those things, you would have with you a readiness, a willingness to hear from God this morning, because I believe together we will hear from Him. Uh, yeah, even up until a few days ago, we thought that uh, many of us would be together, worshiping, fellowshipping together in this very room, but this has been a season of rolling with the punches, hasn't it? Uh, we uh, did not have our in-person Christmas Eve services here on the 24th. We had to move those to the 20th to beat out those new restrictions, and that meant uh, not as many of you could be here, but those who were here, we just had a meaningful time having our Christmas Eve service on the 20th, and um, maybe you already read the email updates where I shared that our Christmas Eve candles that we always use in that service arrived a day too late on the 21st, and so in the absence of having those candles here on Monday for our Christmas Eve service, we all held up our cell phones high with our flashlight on our phones to, uh, to mimic the light of the world that is Jesus Christ, and uh, someone from the church who joined that online service, Christmas Eve service, uh, on the 24th, they sent in this picture, which I just wanted to share with you because I thought it was just so cute, and it just warmed my heart to see a couple young boys in our church, I think these are the Craker boys, joining that service, pulling up, man, I just hope those are not their iPhones, they're a little young for that, probably mommy and daddy's, and they got the flashlight on those iPhones, holding them high uh, with the rest of us as we celebrated Jesus who is our light, he is the light of the world. And so, um, thanks for sending that in, Crakers. This really is a season of rolling with the punches, uh, but it's good to be able to gather in this way this morning. And before we continue, why don't we just, where we are, let's just take a moment and let's just ask God to speak to us what it is that we need from him, and he knows what we need uh, today. And so, let's just ask him to speak and just say, God, we're listening. Father, we thank you that um, even in this way, each in our own homes, um, we can be together at the same time, hearing the same words, sharing the same Holy Spirit who speaks uh, into each of our lives what it is that we need from you, God, and you know who we are, you know our fears, you know our anxieties, you know our sins, uh, Lord, you know our weaknesses, you know our circumstances. And so, God, even though um, we will open this word uh, your word, the Holy Bible, and we will all hear the same words. I just pray, God, that you would take those and you would apply them to each of our lives and just speak what you want for each of us uh, in this time. So we just open up our hearts, we open up our minds, God, and we just invite you to speak to us. And we just want to tell you that we're listening, we want to hear, and we want to submit to you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, it's awesome to be a parent at Christmas. I love it because I kind of get to experience Christmas through the eyes of my children. 
and experience the glee and, and the wonder as I watch them anticipate Christmas Day and rip open those presents and scream in the living room as they got that thing that they so wanted. And uh, over this last month, as I, in the Hildebrand home, trees have been kind of filling out underneath, or uh, gifts have been filling out underneath our Christmas tree. Once in a while, I would walk into the living room to find one of my daughters, normally Pippa, my youngest, just laying on the carpet right by the gifts with her chin in her hands just staring at the presents. And it kind of brings me back to those days when I did the same thing. And she's just wondering, what is in those boxes? And by now, she probably has them all figured out because she's held every single one of them. She knows how much they weigh. She knows how, what, they, what they feel like, how big they are. And she's got it all kind of scoped out as she anticipates what might be in these boxes. Something that I've noticed is that young kids, especially, um, they tend to get most excited about the biggest gifts. By that, I mean the ones that come in the biggest boxes because there's this mindset that I think kids have that a bigger box means a bigger gift. Bigger is better. Now, I think that's kind of a common mindset that kids have at Christmas, that bigger is better. I remember being an eight-year-old boy myself, jumping up on my mom and dad's bed um, in the Christmas season, and I kind of rolled off their bed onto the ground, and I just saw underneath their bed, there was this big box slid underneath my parents' bed, and it was a table hockey game. And I got so excited because I thir- surely that's got to be for me. And so I ran down to my mom who's in the kitchen and I told her about it. And I said, Mom, is this gift for me? I saw this under your bed. And um, in a moment of panic, she lied. I'm sure, you know, God gives her a pass on that one. But she, she said, no, actually that was for Chad, who was another kid in our church. And I was so confused why they would be giving Chad this big gift. But on Christmas Day, I saw a box of that same shape wrapped with my name on it, and I ripped it open, and sure enough, it was this table hockey set, and it was one of my all-time favorite Christmas gifts, and it happened to come in a big box, but as kids, we often think that bigger is better, but you know, as we grow up, we realize it doesn't always work that way, and so even for us this last Christmas, here on the 25th, when we opened up our gifts, probably the most expensive gift under the Hildebrand tree was the smallest gift. It was a set of ear pods for my wife. I hope I scored at least a few brownie points with that there. So kids, you know, they think bigger is better, but you know, I wonder, church, if maybe in other ways we kind of have this same mindset. We wonder, we, we, we think that maybe bigger is better. I know for, for pastors, we can have this sort of mindset, right? Like a bigger church is better than a smaller church. A bigger building is better than a smaller building. More people in church is better than fewer people in church. And and that's why, you know, for me, this has just been an agonizing season as we've had limited capacity here. and We haven't been able to have as many people. It hasn't been as big as I would hope it would be, as I would want it to be. And, And I know for me, it's just so easy to get into that mindset that bigger is better. I wonder if we kind of bring that into the Christmas season. There was a verse, though, that in my disappointment this week, in my discouragement as we were navigating these new restrictions and what that might mean for us, um, God kind of spoke 
to me again and again a verse that was already on my mind because it was in the sermon that I was going to preach on this Sunday. And it comes from the book in the Old Testament called Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 10. There's these few words spoken by God to the prophet Zechariah that say this, Do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. And, and when I really thought on those words and what they meant in the context, they just kept getting more and more meaningful to me. What, what did God mean when He said, do not despise the day of small things? Well, in the day in which God spoke them, it was in the 500s B.C. before Christ. Um, it says this earlier in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. The Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. You see, uh, the people of Israel who lived in their own land, they had their own capital city, Jerusalem, where they had this beautiful temple that Solomon had built. In around the year 580 B.C., the Babylonian Empire, some of the most powerful nations on the face of the earth at that time, they came and they besieged the city of Jerusalem and they conquered Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. They destroyed the city. They tore down the temple. They took most of the Israelite people and, and exiled them back to the land of Babylon, which is where the prophet Hezekiah was born. He was born in the foreign land of Babylon. But then years Later, God allowed for a remnant, just a small group of those exiled Israelites to return to their homeland, to their city, Jerusalem, which lay in ruins. And so, this remnant, this small group of people had returned, and there they began the work of rebuilding their city and rebuilding their place of worship, their temple. And so, in another book of the Old Testament, Ezra, we have an account of the day in which the foundation stone was laid by this remnant of this uh, rebuilt temple to God. This is how it's recorded in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets and the Levites with their symbols, they took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. And so you can just imagine on this day that was supposed to be a day of celebration as the foundation stone of this rebuilt temple was laid and all the, this remnant of Israel was assembled. There were two very different reactions. Those that were younger thought this was a great thing and they celebrated with joy. But those that were of an older generation that were old enough to ha have been around before the exile, to have seen the city, to have seen Solomon's temple in all of its grandeur and glory, now, years later, they saw the blueprint for this temple. And you know what? It just wasn't the same. It wasn't as big. It wasn't as grand. It was smaller. It was simpler. And in their heart, they grieved the fact that it wasn't the same. It was small. And so they wept. Two very different reactions. 
And that's the context in which God was speaking to the prophet Ezekiel when he says, do not despise the day of small things, because in the verse before, chapter 4, verse 9, it says, the hands of Zerubbabel, that's a fun name, say that out loud, Zerubbabel, Uh, he was the leader of this remnant, leader of Israel. God says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, his hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Do not despise the day of small things. And so, over this last week, I think God has just been speaking that to me. Rusty, I know you're kind of discouraged about what's happening in church and just everything around us in these days, but Rusty, do not despise small things. You know, I think that's actually one of uh, the messages of the Christmas story. We're finishing a series this morning through, uh, that we've, we've had through the, uh, the, the, the Christmas season where we've been looking each Sunday at a different carol and finding in these carols an idea, like a really insightful idea, maybe a few words or a verse that point us to deeper insight into the significance of the coming of Jesus into the world. And a few moments ago, we sang that uh, well-known, beautiful carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And there's a verse there that we sang that says, Silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. No ear may hear His coming. And so I've been thinking on those words, silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. No ear may hear His coming. And, and, and what do those words reference? Well, I think whoever wrote those words, they, they were getting at something really important. I think they were referring to the fact that Jesus' birth, what had happened, was small. You know, it was seemingly insignificant. It was just so easy to miss. It happened kind of silently, like the people to the left and to the right of this little stable where Jesus lay in the manger and the people wandering out in the street. They had no idea something of such great significance had just happened right beside them because it was so seemingly small. In fact, only these handful of shepherds on a hillside outside Bethlehem had any indication that something important was happening. And they only knew because it was revealed to them by this host of angels that came and delivered this good news of a Savior that had been born in the town of David in Bethlehem. Only these shepherds had that insight. And who were shepherds? I mean, in the day, they were just the people that were at the very uh, lowest point uh, kind of socially on the, so, on the totem pole. They were the lowest on the social ladder of the day, and yet they were the ones that got this news of this amazing thing that had happened. Not the Pharisees, not the pastors of the day, the religious leaders, the teachers, the educated men. They missed out completely because they just thought, man, if something truly important and significant was happening, surely we would be the ones to hear about it. We would be the ones to know. And they missed out altogether. It was only the shepherds that came to that stable on that night. Everyone else had no idea that something amazing was happening. So Jesus' birth was was just kind of like the town in which he was born, that little town of Bethlehem. Now, it had been prophesied hundreds of years before that the Savior had to be born in Bethlehem, and we see this prophecy uh, in the book of Micah in the Old Testament, chapter 5 verses 2 to 5, which say this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. 
Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. Of course, that is a prophecy fulfilled by Jesus Christ which said that this, this great one would come just from the smallest clan, the itty-bitty little town of Bethlehem that was kind of like one of those one-intersection towns, blink your miss sort of place, kind of like uh, an ancient version of what, maybe Argyle. If you've been to Argyle, you know how small Argyle is, not much there. Although it's a little bigger than I thought, we had uh, the responsibility of delivering one of our church's bags of blessing to a, a random home in Argyle. So Monday night, the Hildebrand family, we drove to Argyle. I thought it only had two streets. Turns out Argyle has three streets. So a little bit bigger than I thought, but I've always thought Bethlehem would have been a lot like the little town of Argyle. Off the beaten path, nothing much of significance happens there. It is the smallest. And yet, God chose to use the smallest to bring about the biggest. And we see this time and time again. Reminded me of the words of Paul in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, when he says to the church, and these really are words to us as well, he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. You hear that? God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things. He chose the small to do the great. And we see this again and again. This is the way that God works from the very beginning, right? Genesis 1.1, when He creates the universe. Out of nothing, God creates everything. This is the sort of God we have. He creates everything out of nothing. And then there's this little barren couple past that age where they could ever have children, and God comes to Abram and Sarah and says, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. They say, who are we? We're old. We're barren. We can't have kids. God says, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. And from them come a child, Isaac, a child of promise. And then the story continues. And you see Joseph mired in prison, forgotten. But God uses him to save his people to carry on God's promise of salvation for the world. And then God comes to this shepherd in the wilderness, Moses, an insignificant man, and he says to Moses, I need you to go and I need you to speak for me to Pharaoh. And Moses says, I don't know how to speak. I stutter. I've got a speech impediment. I think you've got the wrong guy. And God says, I don't have the wrong guy. Just do what I tell you to do. And God uses him to liberate his people from exile to bring them into the promised land where, where the people of Israel face great enemies on all sides. And he raises up a young guy named Gideon, who is from the smallest most insignificant family in all of Israel. And God raises him up and says, I'm going to use you to liberate your people. And so Gideon assembles, you know, he musters together the best army he can to come against the Midianites who have 
far greater numbers of soldiers. And so he's got, he's got tens of thousands of soldiers. And God says, you got too many. You got to whittle it down. And maybe you know how the story goes. I won't go through all the details. But God, God whittles down the army to 300 men against 300,000. 300 men. And God says, that's all I need. And you, maybe you know how the story goes, how God liberates his people using 300 men. And then there was a shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, named David, who stumbles across a battlefield where there's this enemy, this great giant Goliath, and God asks David to come and just take a slingshot and to pick up a few stones and to march out and face this giant. And in faith, he goes and he takes out one stone and puts it in his sling and whips it around and hits him right in the forehead and defeats the enemy. God uses a young shepherd boy with a slingshot. This is what God do, does. God uses the small to bring about the great. And so hundreds of years later, God would come to this young woman, this Mary, a normal girl, and would use her for something great. In her womb would be put this embryo that, that was Jesus the Savior of the world would start just as this embryo growing in Mary's womb, totally unseen by the world. But God was beginning something great through the smallest of things. And so this Jesus was born with no fanfare in the smallest of towns, Bethlehem. And he would grow, and when he would grow at the age of 30 to begin his ministry, he would assemble together, you know, the most knowledgeable, powerful, influential of men, to be his disciples? No. No, he would call together 12 normal, ordinary men, fishermen, to follow him. And so they did. And one day he was on a hillside and there were all these thousands of people who needed food to eat. And God said, Jesus said to his disciples, give, give me something. And they put into Jesus' hands just five loaves of barley and two fish. And out of that, Jesus fed the thousands. He uses the small again and again to do the great. And then he died a seemingly ordinary death, a terrible death, yes, but beside two common criminals, it happened every day. To do the greatest thing in the world, to liberate us from our sin. And after he rose from the dead, he just had a handful of those First disciples, this itty-bitty little church, a handful of regular people who would carry the mission of their great God. And here we are today, thousands of years later, on the other side of the world, celebrating Jesus. God loves to use the small. God does not despise small people, small acts of obedience. He does not despise small things. In fact, this is what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. Jesus would talk about what the kingdom of God is like. He told them this parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And those who were there and heard these words of Jesus. They knew what he meant. Like they were all gardeners. They all had a little plot in their backyard. And 
They knew that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds that they would plant in their garden, and yet it would become the largest garden plant, a, a bush big enough that it could actually hold birds. The smallest would become the greatest. And Jesus says, guys, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It starts small, seemingly insignificant, but by God's power, it can become great. For God uses small things to accomplish His big purposes in the world, and He does it over and over again, and He does it today, and He does it in us. God does not despise small things. He delights in the small. Why? Well, I think we got that answer back in 1 Corinthians, those verses we read a few minutes ago. He delights to use the weak, the lowly, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, that are so that nobody can boast in themselves, so that everybody would know that it's God who has the power, that God is real. Why does God delight in small people in using small things? Because He can use it to display His great power. And God wants to be known. And He makes Himself known by using small people and small things. So the question for us, church, this morning is this. Do we despise or delight in the small? Do we despise or do we delight in the small? Do, do you belittle little things? Do you belittle yourself? Because I think a lot of us, you know, if we're to be honest of ourselves, we feel woefully inadequate in so many ways. We feel small. You know what? We are small. We are small. And in the eyes of this world, most of us, we are rather insignificant, but not to God. Small, yes, but not insignificant. He does not belittle little people, nor little things, and nor should we. But do we belittle little things? Do we look at what we are, what we have, maybe our resources, our gifts, maybe the dreams that God has put? Maybe we don't even know it's God that's given us that dream, but we just have this dream, this desire, and we think, nah, nah that could never happen. I can never do that. I wouldn't work. Maybe we feel God comes and He kind of prompts us to do something, to be involved in something, to go and say something. And we think, no, <laughs> I better not. I'll make a fool of myself. Like, after all, who am I? Who am I? And so maybe we find ourselves often like that third of those servants that we find in the parable of the talents. Remember where, where, where God, the master, gave five bags of gold to the one and two to the second and just one bag of gold to the third. And, and the third thought, look at me, like I'm a nobody. And what did he do? He just dug a hole and he buried what God had given him in that hole just to keep it safe. And maybe that's us. Maybe we've looked at ourselves, our resources, our gifts, our skills, our dreams, and, and, and maybe there's ways in which we've just dug a hole and we've buried it there because it's too small. But Christmas means God uses the small. God loves the small. Let's go back to that story there. Just, just a chapter after in chapter 13, 
Jesus has said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts the smallest and becomes the greatest. Just a chapter later, Matthew chapter 14, we get this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Matthew 14, verses 13 to 18, it says Jesus heard what had happened. He withdrew to a a private place, but the crowds heard where he was, and, and they followed him, and they gathered around him. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on this large crowd, and he healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples, they came to Jesus and they said, they said, Master, this is a remote place. It's getting late. You need to send the crowd away so that they can go to their towns and their homes and they can buy themselves some food to eat. But Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat, guys. You, you do it. And, and what we're supposed to see here is how they looked at one another and they said, what? We don't have anything. And they turned back to Jesus and they said, Lord, we have only, see that word only? If you have your Bible open, maybe you want to underline that word only. Because what they're saying is, what we have is really small. It's really too small, Jesus. It's too small. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. And what does Jesus say? Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Put them in my hands, guys. That'll do. That's all. Whatever you have, as small as it might be, Bring it to me. I'll use it. And so maybe you know how the story goes, how Jesus takes that, those five little loaves and those two fish and he multiplies it to miraculously feed this great crowd as a way of showing that God does not despise small things. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that though it is small, it becomes the greatest of trees. So most of us, I think, we feel like we only have five loaves, and two fishes. So let me ask you the question. With your five loaves and two fish, what would it look like to not despise small things? What would it look like in your life to not despise what it is you have regardless of the size? To to, to not despise any small act of generosity. Maybe you don't have a lot to give. You just have a little to give. What would it look like to not despise small acts of generosity, but believe that when they are given and used by God, they can accomplish something great? What would it look like to not despise some sort of small prompting that you might have, a sense that God may give you as He lays something on your heart to maybe make a call or to go share something with someone or do something for someone. And you might think to yourself, could God really be calling me to do that? I don't know. I wonder if that's just the burrito I had at lunch. I don't know. What would it look like to not despise the small promptings that God maybe lays on our hearts, but to put them in His hands? You know, I read the story of a guy named um, Edward Kimball. It was the 1850s. Edward Kimball, he was a, a Sunday school teacher in Boston, just a very normal guy, but um, he really invested in the kids that he taught, um, in which he taught Sunday school. And uh, God had laid on his heart to go to this one boy in his Sunday school class named Dwight and, and just have a spiritual conversation with Dwight. And so he went and he found Dwight. Dwight was stocking shelves in a shoe store in Boston in the 1850s. And um, Edward came, and he shared Jesus with this boy, and he invited him to receive Jesus into his life. And there in that moment, Dwight gave his heart, gave his life to Jesus Christ, and everything would change. I mean, that boy was Dwight L. Moody. Now, maybe those of an older generation 
that's a familiar name. You might know that Dwight L. Moody was maybe the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. He would go on to become an international uh, speaker and evangelist, and he would tour all over the world. And this one day, he was in the British Isles, and he was preaching in this little chapel where there was a, a young uh, preacher there by the name of Frederick Meyer who heard this message of Dwight L. Moody, and he was inspired uh, to become an evangelist like Moody. And so this Frederick, he became an evangelist and he started to preach in different places and he went to North America, back to Massachusetts from which Dwight had come. And there he, he preached the good news of Jesus. And he was heard by a young guy named W. Wilbur Chapman who responded to the call of, of God on his life. And Wilbur became a Christian, became an effective evangelist himself. And Wilbur, when he went around preaching, he enlisted the help of a volunteer named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday learned how to preach by watching Wilbur. And eventually, he too started to uh, travel around to preach the good news of Jesus and became a very powerful evangelist himself. And Billy Sunday was, was at a crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, where there was a group of Christian men that were inspired to reach through his ministry, reached the city of Charlotte for Christ. And so they invited an evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and hold some meetings and to do that very thing. And so in the, uh, the year eight, 1932, Mordecai Ham was preaching and a local farmer loaded up his pickup truck, truck with a bunch of neighbors, brought him to these meetings. And in that truck was a 16-year-old boy who came back night after night and he found his heart stirred. And that one night, the final night of those meetings, he gave his heart to the Lord and that guy's name was Billy Graham, and maybe you've heard of Billy Graham, maybe the greatest evangelist of the last hundred years who brought many and many people to the Lord as he shared the good news of Jesus around the world. In fact, a couple months ago, I heard the story of, uh, of, of an older couple in our church, founding members of New Life Church, Al and Natalie James, and how decades ago, when they were just a young couple, they attended a Billy Graham uh, crusade in Winnipeg, and that's where they gave their hearts to the Lord. <laughs> And if you trace it back, it all began just with this guy no one's ever heard of, Edward Kimball, who was a Sunday school teacher. You know what? And he gave his best to his small task. And out of that small act, God did great things. Church, let us not be those who despise small things. I'm trying to get better at that. I'm trying to obey the prompting of God's the, the prompting of God. If you were here last week, you maybe heard the story of a few weeks ago when I was in Medicine Hat in the mall, and I just felt God kind of lay on my heart to share something with this person. And I thought, oh man, this is, I chickened out actually, and then I kind of came back and I shared with God. I felt I'd put it on my heart to share, and it was just amazing in that moment how that resonated with that person's life, and it was so evident. It was so evident that God was the one that had orchestrated that, and, and I'm... It taught me, Rusty, do not belittle these small promptings because you have no idea what God intends to do even through a small word, a phone call, an act of kindness and generosity. Let's be those who do not belittle these small promptings God lays in our minds and in our hearts. Maybe God has given you a dream. You just kind of keep pushing to the side because you just... You just feel like you're too small to be able to do anything of significance. And so there's this dream that you sweep under the rug. I mean, I, what is it? What is it in your life? What would it look like for you not to despise small things? 
You know, we can be overwhelmed by the magnitude of need around us. There's so much need, and we go, what sort of difference can we make? Maybe you saw the sign here in town at uh, uh, another church which said, you know, if you can't help 100 people around you, just help the one you can. Yeah, that's right. We can't help everybody, but we can help somebody. We can't speak to everybody, we can speak to somebody. We can't do everything, but we can do a little thing. And through a little thing, God can do great things. What would it look like in your life to not despise the small, but to delight in the small, to embrace the small as God does? A couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, the mall here in Winnipeg with my family doing some last-minute Christmas shopping. I think I was in H&M, you know, one of those lady clothing stores that I hate to be in, but <laughs> I was looking for a gift. It was full of people, busy shopping. And over the intercom system in the store, there was this very familiar song, Little Drummer Boy, playing that everyone in that song would have known. They are probably like me humming the song. And then I just stopped and I listened to the words and, and I wondered to myself, how many people here actually understand the message of what's being said? And the words kind of resonated with me. These are the words of the song, Little Drummer Boy. Come, they told me, pa-rum-pum-pum-bum. A newborn king to see, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. Our finest gifts we bring, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. To lay before the king, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum, rum-pum-pum-pum, rum-pum-pum-pum. So to honor him, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum, when we come. Little baby, pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. I am a poor boy too, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. I have no gift to bring, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. That's fit to give our king, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum, rum-pa-pum-pum, rum-pa-pum-pum. Shall I play for you? Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum, on my drum. Mary nodded, pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. The ox and lamb kept time, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. I played my drum for him, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. I played my best for him, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum, rum-pum-pum-pum, rum-pum-pum-pum. Then he smiled at me, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum, me and my drum. I thought of those words, and they really spoke to me. This young boy who, not like the kings who had gold and frankincense and myrrh to offer, all he had was his drum and he had this little gift. And he came and he gave that gift. He he gave the little he had and he gave the best he had. And Jesus looked and he smiled. And that's the way it works. God calls us to give the little we have, to give the best, and he smiles on that. He delighted because God delights in small things. Do not despise the day of small beginnings, Zechariah 4.10. In fact, if you go back even a few verses to verse 6, the Lord says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What is God saying? He's saying it's not going to be your might. 
You don't have to have any. It's got to, not going to be your power. You don't need to have any. It's going to be by my spirit that something great will happen. Don't despise small things. Give what you have. Do what you can. Put yourself into my hands because the power of a tool does not rest in the tool itself, but it rests in the power of the hands that hold the tool. And God says, put yourselves the little you have in my hand. I can do something great with you. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. So math doesn't work with God. You know, calculations. It doesn't work with God. God doesn't work that way. God is the one who made everything out of nothing. And He can make a lot of things out of our nothing. Because he loves to use the weak and he loves to use the small. He just asks that we put our small in his hands. That we are led by his spirit. So church, let us be those in our lives who not, do not despise small things. So I want to invite you into a moment of reflex, reflection and prayer. And I want you to consider, what would it look like for you to embrace the small in your life? Maybe there's something that you've looked at and you've just belittled it because it's little. What would it look like for you to embrace the small? Well, you just take a moment right where you are, bow your head, and ask God that question. God, what would it look like for me to embrace the small? God, is there something you're asking me to do, to give? Some way in which you want me to serve that just seems small? God, is there some dream that you've given me that I've been just pushing to the side because I feel too small? God, I just pray that you would show us in each of our lives what it is that you've given to us, what resources, what gifts, what people, what callings and dreams. And Lord, may we put those in your hands. May we not despise the small because you are not a God who despises the day of small things. God, would you just use us? Would you use us to do great things for your name? Church, what I want to do is uh, to invite you into a, a bit more time of prayer. This is the time where you might naturally just want to turn off the service and go about your day. 
but I just want to encourage you to not do that. Um, I, I've just felt the, the leading that we need to spend a bit more time in prayer together as a church, and I know we're all kind of doing it in our own spaces right now, but God can bring all of our prayers together. And I just want to guide you in this time of prayer, and what I want you to do right where you are, maybe you're by yourself, and, and when I give you some moment to pray here and some instruction, I, I encourage you just to pray out loud, even if it's just you. And maybe you're with a spouse, maybe you're with a family, maybe you're with some friends, a, a small group. Regardless of who you're with, I would just encourage you to pray out loud together. Why don't you take a moment, church, and pray for New Life Church. Pray for this family. Whatever God lays in your heart for this family, pray for the protection of this church against division and discouragement. Pray for unity. Maybe you're aware of some needs within our body, some people that are struggling. Maybe you want to spend some time to pray for those people. Whatever the Lord lays on your heart to pray for this church, your church family, I want to give you a minute right now. I'm going to set the timer. And uh, take this time to pray for your church. Now, church, I want to invite you into a, a time of prayer for our community, for your neighbors, your neighborhood, for the town you live in, whether it be Stonewall or Stony Mountain or Warren or Woodlands or Toulon or Balmoral or Gunton or Argyle, Gross Isle, Rosser, Winnipeg, somewhere further away. Well, you just take a moment and, and pray for your community. Maybe you have certain people, certain faces that come to your mind. Maybe people that are struggling right now that, that people you just so desire would be able to know Jesus and know His life the way that you do. Maybe you want to pray for protection over our community in the face of all the challenges that have come with this COVID season.
Just take a, a minute right now together. Let's pray for a community. Church, let's um, take a moment to be praying for our leaders, whether it's the leaders of this church or maybe more specifically the leaders of our communities, our province, our nation, people that God has put in places of authority and power and influence. They influence our lives, the direction of our society. Take a moment just to pray for godly wisdom for them, that they would make wise and good decisions that would be for the good of society, that they would look to God for that wisdom. The Bible commands us to lift up our leaders in prayer. Let's do that. Here in a moment, church, we're going to take communion together, and um, maybe you've already prepared some bread and some drink to join in. If not, you can always hit pause and go find that and come back. But before we take this cup and this bread together, I just want to invite you into one more moment of prayer to pray for yourself. These are the words of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why don't you pray that prayer? Just ask for God to um, just to show you if there's anything that you need to um, address in your life, anything you need to confess, 
anything that you need to make right. Maybe there's some broken relationship. Maybe it's related to COVID differences or maybe it's related to something else. But maybe God will just put on your heart something that you need to make right. Maybe, maybe a, a phone call that you need to make. I don't know. But why don't you just take a moment. Let's all just pray for ourselves and just submit ourselves to God again and say, God, would you have your way in us? Let's pray that now. God, as we take this bread and we drink of this cup together, and I don't know what is all going to be in people's cups, whether it's grape juice or wine or eggnog or orange juice or coffee, uh, but God, that's not so important what's in the cup. It's what the cup represents, and it represents the blood you shed to bring us into relationship with you, God, but also to bring us into right relationship with one another, to make a kingdom a kingdom that has a people, a family, the family of God. And so, Lord, as we take this together all in our own places, but at the same time, Lord, it is a, a, a sign of the oneness that we have with you, God, and it's a sign of the oneness that we have together, brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters. And so, God, help us to live as one. Help us to live united in love with one another so that the world may know that Jesus is your Son. Amen. Church, why don't you take some bread? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And he said, this body represents, or this uh, bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat of it together, remember me, remember my love for you. Let's eat together. Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember me every time you drink of it together. Let's remember. Church, I invite you to stand wherever you are right now. Uh, as together we recite our, uh, the words of our faith, the content of our faith, 
recite the words of the Apostles' Creed, this creed, ancient creed that uh, Christians of all ages, of all places have declared together. And so, would you stand? You should see on your screen uh, the words of the Apostles' Creed. Why don't we declare this together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, before I send you uh, on with your day, uh, I want us to res together recite our benediction. These words are referenced in my message, which come uh, from the book of Ephesians that declare that though we are small, God is great, and God uses small things and small people to do great things. Let's say this together. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.